Welcome to Continuous Dream. Today, Part 3, Chapter 1 of Kells, The Gospel of Columba, a novel by Amy Kreider. Part 3, read by Baird Brucher. Part 3 Chapter 1 Don Ad I've decided to set down, as a companion to the great gospel of Columba, this story of my journey years ago, when I was sent by the monastery to aid the monks in gathering materials. We had to go to Don Ad to ask for hides, and little did I know how far I would travel from there. I wasn't pleased to be sent at first. The Canachtuck took my hand and said, Helach, you can be my eyes and ears, and tell me of the new places you will see, people whose hearts feel differently than ours, who look for different things in the world than we do. You will be interested, you are curious, and I think, before the end, you will wish to keep travelling always. I don't know how he knew me so well. The monks who would go on this journey were Brother Darek, our leader and representative of Bressel, the pale old brother Nithard a round-faced, smiling brother named Reuben, who I did not know well, and Brother Gormgal. The captain of the boat was Brother Cole, whose beard always grew very heavy between the monthly tonsures, and to help sail was Antony, not a brother, but a worker at the monastery. Brother Cole had been to Dunald before and knew the way. It was a fine morning in late summer when we stood on shore, about to push off. All the monks were there, and Bressel asked Gormgul to make a prayer for their journey. Almighty God, keep us in your hand as we brave these treacherous seas in our humble boat. Columba, for your sake we journey, for your sake we take on this cross, to honour you in the creation of a great gospel. We venture forth and risk our lives for you knowing that you would not let us down, you would not turn away, because you are a mighty and powerful saint, our treasure. We expect you to guide us, for if you abandon us, we would doubt your power and will, and we would wonder whether to spurn you for some other more attentive saint in our desperate hours of hopelessness. Never would we challenge your might, O Columba, never would we say of you you were not a saint, a furious blessing, and subtle understanding, and we expect that never would you give us, your humble prostrate servants, to doubt the beneficence of your love and wrathful vengeance against any who would thwart our just cause in your name. In the name of the Lord, Amen. As we turned toward the boat, I heard Brother Reuben murmur, I were Columba, I would not get on Gormgur's bad side. I would soon get to know Reuben's asides and learn that monks were not all identical in holiness and humility, but each was different, as any farmer or master was different from the other. I looked back at Iona from the boat. I thought how I loved it there. The good work and the serenity of it. And I realized my irritation to go was really a fear. A question of whether I would return or what I would find when I did. Then God drew a veil of mist over the little island. And I did not gaze upon it again for a very long time. But I was quickly distracted by the captain, Brother Cole, who put me to work at sailing, which I had never done before. I had thought I would have nothing to do but row, but there was much to do, and I found myself feeling happy as we flew over the water. I was stronger than I thought, and to match the challenge. It was not just labor as I was used to. To sail is to master the wind, and I had never experienced this kind of power over nature. Gormgal had prayed for the saints to give us wind, but we used it with cunning, with mastery, with quick-wittedness. We slipped through the air with the grace of an angel. I felt that though we were merely human, we had a power I didn't know before, that we had possibilities, that man was not just a laboring beast, but that God loved us for a reason, and this was the reason, that we could move like angels with the use of our minds. I started to understand that man can choose to be a beast or something more like an angel. 
The monks maintained their monastic silence for a while, and the only voice was Cole giving orders and instructions. He was a patient teacher, with the expectation that I would learn quickly. And I did. Gormgul, to spare ink and the weariness of the reader's eye, I would forego saying brother at every name, was writing on a wax tablet. When he was finished, he tapped Reuben on the shoulder and showed him a hymn that he had written. Reuben quoted it aloud. Mary, mother of pearl, grace of tears. Why mother of pearl? Reuben stopped to ask. She is the pearl. Gormgal tapped the tablet with his stylus. Mother of pearl, Jesus, is the pearl. I wouldn't call Jesus a pearl. Of course Jesus is the pearl. Why wouldn't he be? Nithar extended his hands in pacification, his soft, high voice meekly pleading. I think Mary can be both pearl and mother of pearl, depending on what you are writing, and Jesus can be the pearl of wisdom. Reuben would not give up. I can't see Jesus as a pearl. Why not? Gormgal asked with a glare. Nithar shook his trembling grey head. Oh, now, it's a small matter. Reuben was unruffled at Gormgal's emotion. A pearl is feminine. A pearl is white and smooth and curved. A man would not be a pearl. They stopped arguing and grew quiet. I found myself thinking of soft, white, curving women, but I'm sure that thought was not why they cast their eyes down and ceased talking. Nearby, Darek was listening, but with a different frame of mind. He had kept to himself and seemed to be brooding. I was too young to be considerate, to think how the terror on Lindisfarne affected his mind. With a concentrated look, he said, more to himself than to them, Holy Mary, holy Mary, tears like pearls. The others looked up, the reverie broken, and Gormgall started rubbing out the line on its wax tablet and jotting down the new words. Would sail near Colonsay, my former home, but Cole was headed to land on the east coast of Jura to spend the night. To get there, we would have to pass through the heavy chop of the grey dogs through the strait between the islands of Scarda and Lune, and around the Corryvreck and Whirlpool. I had heard of the Whirlpool all my life, but I had never sailed around it. The boat rose and fell hard in the waves, quickly pulled by the tidal waters. Cole worked hard at the steering oar to keep the boat into the waves and not to be rolled over if we were parallel to them. I wondered that his oar didn't snap. The brown rocky hill of Scarba seemed to leap up and down beside us and I felt sick. We were all silent, and if we had talked we would have been drowned by the crash of the waves. We shot into the strait at last. The sun was setting, the sea glazed in red. A louder roar rose above the crash. A roar like the crashing of swords and shields. The Morrigan, brave in spirits of battle, could not have cried more fiercely or have caused more fear in my heart. We rounded Scarba deep in shadow. Ahead, a shaft of light flashed from between Scarba and Jura, the narrow strait from which the sea's roar came. I had thought I wanted to see the whirlpool, but now I wish we were not headed closer and closer at full speed. The strait cut through the rock of Scarba and Jura. Waves crashed, the foam red in the setting sun, the warfare of waves, the Corryvreckin' whirlpool. Spinning near the shore, spouting a wild spray, the din clashing to the sky. Kylek Bird washes her plaid, Anthony shouted to me. If the hag of winter laundered her blanket there, surely it was to rinse out the blood of unlucky sailors. I stared enchanted by the leaping waves. A higher sound arose, just barely, a high rasp above the din, coming from close to me. Darius' hands were clutched over his ears, his eyes squeezed tight. He emitted a keening wail, ghostly and shrill. His face was white in his bony hands. He shook beyond the quaking of the boat. The sailors ignored him, intent on controlling the boat and the fast tide. I touched Reuben's arm and pointed. Reuben slid his arm around Derek and pulled him close. Derek buried his face in Reuben's shoulder like a child. They held each other until Jura loomed beside us, and the roar dimmed, though still audible, rushing like the blood in my heart. We pulled ashore, carried the boat up the beach in the twilight. Antony started a fire. I gathered driftwood, and when the fire was lit, sank to my knees in exhaustion. Cole leaned down and patted my shoulder. Hard part's over, he said. 
We ate dried meat and bread and told the legends we knew of the whirlpool. I reckon the Prince of Norway sought the hand of an island princess. The king challenged him to anchor three days at the edge of the maelstrom. He went home to make three ropes, one of wool, one of hemp, but the third to work a blessing, woven of the hair of pure maidens. The first day the woolen rope broke. The second day the hemp couldn't hold. He was almost to his goal, but at the end of the third day the maiden's hair rope snapped because one of the maidens had not been pure. He was drowned under the sea and washed ashore where his dog dragged him to the cave on the beach. Pagan nonsense, Gormgall muttered. The whirlpool was real enough, I thought. Nithard held out his hand. In the placating manner I would come to know. There is some wisdom in old stories. A dangerous real enough, Gormgall, tired and impatient, said. Stories of her children... Reuben rubbed his face and spoke through a yawn. Not everyone gets to see the origin of such a tale and pass through the danger unscathed. Were you excited? he asked me. I was surprised. He gave me an easy smile. I was more frightened than I expected to be. One hears the stories and forgets the danger. Now you have a story to tell, Reuben replied. Derek sat nearby, staring into the fire with a haunted face. He seemed to ignore us until he said, Had there be no more to tell. The unspeakable, all is unspeakable. Reuben and Nithard put a hand on his shoulder, but he only stared blankly at the low flames. We stretched out. I was exhausted and fell into a deep sleep, dreaming of whales wearing strings of pearls and dogs riding on their backs. The next morning Antony and I made a fire to cook some cured pork in a pot of milk. Gormgall protested that meat should not be boiled in milk as prohibited in the holy book. Reuben looked at him, dumbfounded. Surely uh, Paul answered that question, that we are not bound by Jewish law. Gormgall set his jaw. We still shouldn't completely flout the law our saviour lived by. If you feel that way, you shouldn't eat the pork at all. I waited with the bag of pork, hesitating to add it to the pot while he argued. Nithard shook his head from side to side and held out his arms. Oh, now, brothers, it is not a great matter. Gormgall was trembling with his self-made irritation. And for that fact, we should not eat any meat at all. I thought you hated the Cayley Jay, Reuben retorted. Gormgall took his wooden cup, dipped a mug of milk from the pot and stormed off to drink. I asked Reuben who the Cayley Jay were. They are a contingent of monks who seek a stricter rule, who pray more often, eat even less, and preach that we are all grown soft. But some of us feel that they are too proud in their strict worship. Pride is the most terrible sin. He glanced over at Gormgall, who crouched a little away from us drinking his milk. And some people are often guilty of what they most condemn. After we'd eaten, Gormgall came back, and with an eerie friendliness put an arm about my shoulders and told the familiar story of St. Kevin, fed salmon by the otter. He seemed to be mollified by his own discipline of only drinking the milk. When we were back at sea, Gormgall took a rod and began to fish for himself. He was surely hungry by now. He laughed suddenly, a choking, wrathful laugh, as his pole bent. He jerked it up, and dangling in the air was a bright dancing fish. He bobbed it up and down a moment, laughing. Suddenly, from nowhere, a golden eagle swept down and grabbed it, neatly pulling the fish off the line and flying off with it in her feet. Gormgall stared open-mouthed. Doubtless the eagle is taking it to feed some hungry saint, waiting patiently by his cell on shore, Reuben said with a satisfied smile. We crossed the sound of Jura and passed into Lochrinian surrounded by purple hills, and entered the broad estuary of the River Ad, almost level with the green boggy plain that stretched to the hills that circled the horizon. In the distance was a single tall mound, the hill fort known as Dun Ad in the middle of the plain, an oddity, the only hill at all rising in the centre of the broad flat plain. We could have walked straight to it, but for the bog, we had no course but to follow the sharply winding river, coiling through the plain like an adder, for which it was named, and its black colour increased the comparison. 
The monks had been quiet for a while when Gorbgal turned to Derek. How are we going to approach Dunhara? he asked. Derek, until then staring with a fixed gaze at the sky, turned to him. What do you mean? Will you anoint him first or ask for the hides first? Derek looked at him, then started staring at the sky again. Reuben sat up, saying, We can't make those two things related. Gormgog glared at him. We can't anoint him and then be refused. Of course we won't be refused. Why would he refuse? asked Reuben in an annoyed voice. Nether lifted his arms and beckoned for peace. Now, now, God will provide. Derek suddenly looked back at the group with a dark and furious face, and we all took in our breaths, but he spoke mildly. We will allow him to offer. He knows the will of God cannot be avoided. He stared at the sky again and repeated, God's will cannot be avoided. After a bit I noticed flashes of light on the black water. A school of dead fish floated around our boat. I didn't want to speak of it, but looked around. Derek's gaze was fixed on the water. This place has a sickness, he said. I felt queasy, but I rode hard and steady and the work settled my stomach. Derek started a chant to set our pace, and after a verse or two was repeated, Anthony and I joined in. I never chanted like that before. I felt the power of our joined voices and the beauty of the sound echoing over the plain. Ahead of us, a gate blocked the river next to a fort on the bank. This was the guard post of Dunad, the hill fort still beyond. We heard voices, and a group of soldiers came out of the guardhouse. Knowing the monks' white robes, they did not present arms to us. Their leader stood in front, a tall, slim man with curly brown hair and a moustache. He had a serious, dignified air. When I caught sight of him, I immediately wondered if he saw my skill in rowing as we pulled up to the quay. Antony threw a rope to one of the soldiers who tied up our boat. "'Welcome. I am Garrick,' said the leader of the men. He stood at attention, his legs like sapling trunks wound about with leather brace. His blonde moustache was clean and well-trimmed, and his eyes had a direct, clear look to them. It was Yerik's command that encouraged such respect from his men. He clearly stepped up to the boat as we docked at the gate and helped Derek off first, putting his long arm around him, understanding at first glance the fragility of the old monk. As I tied up the boat, I wondered if he noticed me. I wanted to make a good impression. The gatehouse stood on piers in the boggy bank, and inside it smelled of new wood that seemed to glow as the sun came in the doorway. We all stood as Gormgal offered the prayer of thanks. I felt unsteady on my feet after the boat journey, my knees slack, but I stood as straight as I could muster. When Girik showed the monks to their seats, I hung back, ready to serve, but he waved me over and seated me like an equal with himself at the monks. I shared soft wheat and bread with him, dipped in salt, and drank sweet ale, a slave of no status served like a guest. I rested in a momentary sense of security. Girik asked one of the servers, a boy, to sing hymns while he ate so that we would be refreshed before answering any questions about why we had come. When he had eaten, Yerik said, We are blessed to be visited by such holy men. What is the cause of your long journey? He addressed himself to Derek, who hunched his shoulders and looked away. Gormgal answered, We have undertaken the holy task of creating a new gospel to glorify God and St. Columba. We need many hides and wish to humbly beg your king for a contribution. Yerik's face looked grim. King Dongshara died last winter, God rest his soul. The soldiers echoed in unison, God rest his soul. The room fell silent. Darek suddenly spoke in a loud, shaking voice. This is a poor beginning and a punishment. We are on trial. He started to choke, turning red. Reuben reached to slap his back, and Yerik himself rose and knelt by him, letting the old monk lean against his shoulder until he was able to breathe again. You have come to us when we are at turmoil, but I know you are here for a reason, and you will help us. We will help each other, God's blessing. What is the turmoil? Reuben asked. Yerik took his seat again and explained. There are two who now claim the kingship of the Dalriata. Don Cara's son, Ruin, 
Endochid, who was married to Run's sister. Dolcara was half-picked, and in the picked land inheritance goes through the daughter. So, Ochid claims he his heir through his wife. Is it war, then? Reuben asked. It hasn't come to blows, but it threatens to. The men are divided as we struggle to settle the matter peacefully. Somewhere behind me a voice murmured, Ochid the Venomous, and a shiver went up my spine. Doric clapped his hands together. God will decide. We will pray on it. Yerik looked at Doric with an encouraging and soothing gaze. If you aren't too tired, we can go now to meet with them. The court has gone to kill Martin on the other side of the fortress to enjoy the sweetness of the weather. You'll be interested in the monuments there, erected by druids in the forgotten times. I'd like to take you. Darek stared back at him, light coming to his clouded eyes. Yes, we will go. Girik took Darek with him, in his own boat, and we followed in ours. I longed to be with them, though I was also relieved to be free of Darek's grief. What I longed was to be one of Girik's men. And as we rowed, I thought of my future. How I'd become a Sanclata. An old house post, as the old slaves are called. I would go from boyhood to old age, and never be a man, because I had no land. When the banks became good hard land and we were beyond the bog, we dragged the boats on shore and walked along the edge of a wheat field, the tall grass blocking some of my view. Singing and the voices of playing children let me know we were almost at Kilmartin. The warm wheat brushed my shoulder. When we rounded the field, spread before us was a plain edged by woods, and sheep frolicked among huge grey stones standing upright all over the plain, so strange and haunting that at first I didn't notice the members of court playing among the sheep and stones. As Reuben and Gormgul hurried up to join Girik and Darek, no one seemed concerned with me, so I wandered off by myself. I leaned back against a monument, measuring its height against mine. It was roughly twice as tall as I. There were more than a dozen of them. Who had erected them? Girik had said the Druids. They were religious monuments. It started to dawn on me the power of a church. It took power to raise these stones, and now our monks might be called upon to decide who would be king, anointing the chosen one in the name of the abbot. All power is God's, and the church is the doer of God's work. The mighty stones, taciturn and holy, were testimony to the power of faith. As I stood there, feeling the cold, hard stone, guessing at the weight of the backs of the faithful who erected them, a low chuckle came from behind me. I was near the edge of the wood, and a man on horseback had just ridden up nearby. His gaze directed mine toward a fawn and doe stepping out of the wood, tan hearts dotted with white spots. I looked back at the man who put an arrow in his bow. I couldn't avert my eyes. He shot. The arrow struck the fawn through the neck. It fell at once, bleeding profusely. The doe bleated in a loud groan and pawed the ground. The horseman bore down upon them as the doe reared, jumped, and only at the last moment as the horse galloped upon her did she turn and run into the woods. There was no question of the horseman's aim. It was for the fawn. The fawn's legs jerked a few times, and then it was dead. The horseman dismounted, turned his cold eye upon me, evaluating me as a slave as no one important, and said, Oi, take it up. I struck the dead thing's neck and worked out the arrow. Its blood was warm on my hands. The horseman handed me a cloth to bind it, to keep blood from spilling on him, and I hoisted it onto the horse, which snorted and tried to rear. The horseman held firm and had him under control. The warm day turned cold. I wanted to walk away, but as a slave I had to do what I was willed. In a bored voice he asked, So, who are you? I am Kayla, slave of the monastery of Iona. Iona? What are you doing here? He looked more interested, curious now. He was not tall, and he looked down on me slightly, a pale man close-shaven. 
His teeth were gleaming white, perfectly straight. He would have been handsome, had he not reeked of evil. I have come with monks who have business with the king. With the court, I corrected myself, since I knew there was no king. That is my business, he said. What is it? They seek heights for a gospel. His face relaxed into a smile. That is good. Is there a particular reason for this endeavour? I didn't feel it my place to explain everything, but I had no right to refuse him, and I told him of the terrible raid. His face seemed to brighten the more I told him. Ah, Brother Derek, you say, witness the whole thing. Yes. And who does he chiefly pray to? It seemed an odd question. He seems to love the Holy Mother best of all, I said. Feeling vexed, he looked away in thought, then brusquely dismissed me with a wave of his hand, never bothering to tell me who he was, but I guessed. He strode ahead of me toward the monks, whose white robes could be seen in the middle of the field. I followed a little behind and stood behind one of the tall stones when we approached. When we had gotten there, the monks were speaking with a lean man whose thin hair had the appearance of a tonsure, with a worried crease in his forehead. That is truly a horrific tale, God save us. He was saying, the monks had just told him of the raid. Girik said, A good army is more a force than any savages. They turned to the horsemen then, who joined them. God bless you. I'm Ochid the Fourth. You must be Brother Derek, a holy man. Brothers Reuben and Gorngal, I have heard of your arrival and pledge any help I can. Along with my brother, Run. Yes, we are bound to help you, the gaunt man, Run said. Tomorrow we will have a prayer service. Derek, ashen and trembling from having told his terrible story, turned to him and extended his arm. Ochid put his arm around him, handing the lead of his horse to Run. We will pray to Holy Mary, Derek said. Derek buried his face in Ochid's shoulder. Gormgol and Reuben reached for each other and held hands, making peace in their mutual desire to alleviate the old monk's torment. We will ask for guidance, and how best to aid you, Ochid said. Holy Mary will tell us, Derek said, muffled by Ochid's steady shoulder. Uh, perhaps some of our men could help build a stout wall around the monastery, Run said. Ochid stroked Derek's white head. I think it would be wondrous to create a new gospel for St. Columba's blessing, he said. My heart went cold in my chest. Gormgar said, Yes, that is our mission. We have begun to plan it, Reuben said. And we will give all we can, Ochid continued. How many hides would it require? Reuben and Gormgar looked embarrassed before Reuben replied. One hundred and fifty. Reuben started. Of course we will help, but I don't want to promise more than we can give and disappoint you. Ochid waved his hand. Of course, all is possible with the Lord. The coldness I'd felt was matched by oncoming clouds and a light rain began to fall. The stones turned dark. The world darkened for me from that day. Ochid didn't stop there. I will personally make sure you will be supplied. But I have a favour to ask if I may, a favour to seek Mary's blessing. This gospel, will it be filled with beautiful ornament and illustrations? Yes, Gormagor said. We call them illuminations. Ochid's face took on an exaggerated, beatific look. Then, if you would include an illumination depicting the Holy Mother, I would feel doubly blessed. Derek straightened up and kissed his cheek. Of course, brother, of course. Rune cleared his throat and looked at a loss for words. The scene had slipped from his grasp if he ever looked at things in such a way which I think he did not. Yes, we will secure the blessing of Holy Mary and Columba and let's pray to St. Patrick as well. Yes, all the saints. Gormgal turned beet red. Even I knew from having lived on Iona that Gormgal hated St. Patrick, or I should say, loved Columba and felt a hot jealousy at the ascending star of Patrick, as you know. It was not the right thing to have said. I tried to quell my fear that Rune had already lost the support of the monks. 
Let's go back to the court, now that the weather has turned, Ochid said. We will feast in your honor, if you've a mind for some refreshment. The women were gathering the children from all their hiding places around the stones. Two women caught my eye, especially. A pale blonde woman, who I learned was Ochid's Pictish wife, and another one, dark and tall, her brown hair and a braid round her head, wearing yellow, all embroidered with silver, gleaming in the mist of rain. I stared at her, noticing she walked alone behind all the others. We returned, Garrick going back to his guardhouse, while we climbed the steep hill up to the fortress. It was ringed with several walls along the way, the path becoming increasingly narrow between rocky, heather-covered outcroppings. At the top, I caught my breath at the view. The distant hills blended with the storm clouds in a mass of grey and blue, and the bog was golden green in shafts of waning light. Ochid nudged me. To the kitchens! Yes, sir. A boy led me the back way, so I didn't see the smiths and stalls or the front of the great king's house. The kitchen perched on the edge of the hill, smoky, hot and dark in the corners. A huge black cauldron bubbled on the enormous fire. At the far end, the fawn was hanging. I tried not to look at it. Akhid may have said some message to the master of the kitchen, because I was not allowed to even serve my monks, but stayed in the kitchen tending the fire until I sweated and my throat was dry. The feast seemed to last hours, until at last we could eat and slake our thirst. No one was temperate in their drink at the end of the long night, and the ale started to loosen my tongue. A great chief must have raised those stones to kill Martin, and we'll have a great chief again, someone said. If only Garrick would let us fight. It was the Druids, their priests who raised the stones, I said. It is the church of any people that makes them strong. Like those who raised the stones, our monks will anoint your king. Achib the Venomous serves himself, and we will anoint Run as is fitting. I spoke as if I were equal to the monks, my masters. They laughed. Are you a monk, then? Someone asked. I could if I would be. For there the true power lies. A big burly man named Barak clapped me on the shoulder. If you are to become a monk, you must know a woman first. You must know what you're leaving behind. He held my gaze, and in his nearness I smelled his yeasty breath. Bina's for that. You saw her, I'm sure, with her long black hair. I had glimpsed her at Kilmartin. Berwick continued. You must go to her house on the other side of the fort. She is waiting. She will be your guide. Go to her. Go on and unwrap the mystery of a woman's treasure, and then you can take the white robe and become chaste. But not chaste in ignorance. All the rest quickly added their encouragement. I was drunk, and a spell came over me, compelled by their certainty. So I rose and pitched out into the night. It was dead night now. The moon had set, and all was dark as I staggered out. Somehow I knew my way to the little house because it was apart from the others. There was a sliver of light spilling out of her doorway. The door opened silently, and suddenly in the light of a candle I saw her lying there. Her black hair was arrayed across the pillow. She was naked, and I saw the whole of her. Her breasts were poised upward. Her gleaming legs were slightly apart. There was a small patch of black curls crowning her womanly mound and a thin line that marked the forbidden opening. I crept up and kissed her rosy mouth. She opened her eyes and seeing me she sprang away and grabbed the sheet over her. She did not look horrified but more impatient and her face darkened in anger. What the devil are you doing? Do you want to be killed? Her throat muscles rippled with her fierce whisper. They told me... Her arm swung out and she boxed my ear. Don't you know not to listen to fools? Behind me a man chuckled. It was the same chuckle I heard when the fawn came out of the wood and my blood went cold. I turned round. Orchid stood there, half-dressed, but a dagger by his side. What does the boy think? That he can share my bed? I knew when I first saw him he was far bolder than his height should allow. Achid reached across the bed and pulled me off and pushed me to the ground at his feet. You lust above your station. There are servant girls aplenty, maybe even a virgin like yourself among them. 
With a rapid punch, he hit my chin and sent me reeling back. Let him go, Bina said tiredly, without emotion. I sat on the ground and rubbed my face. He looked like the pleasure it gave him to be able to beat someone outweighed his anger at finding me there. Crawl away then, little bug, he said. I crawled all the way out of the house and part of the way back before I stood. I was no longer drunk or dazed. The blood pounded in my ears. I marched back to the kitchen, still under my innocent delusions, as even that scene was not enough to make me wise. The servants were still sitting and leaning by their fire. I felt as if I'd been gone an hour, but it was only a few minutes. As I walked in, they stared at me, some in surprise, others covering their smiling mouths. "'The Venomous keeps Bina as his concubine!' I exclaimed, as if that would shock them. They burst into roaring laughter. My face burned in shame. Of course, they knew. "'You're alive!' Beric cried. "'We had a bet on whether he would kill you. Now I owe Senna a brass buckle. You are trouble!' I started to back away when he grabbed me and forced me down by the fire. The house grew silent. "'Venomous is our chief,' he said between gritted teeth. "'Ochid is strong, clever, and knows how to command men. "'We don't take kindly to those who think they have the balls to say otherwise. "'You're still a virgin, but maybe now you'll be more a man. Drink.' "'He pushed a cup at me and ruffled my hair, saying, "'Was a good laugh!' <laughs> "'I drank and said nothing. "'The group returned to their joking and laughter.' I slipped outside. I slept outside their kitchen on the cold, hard ground. I was a man now. Not because I lay with a woman, but because I slept alone. Early the next morning, stiff and uncomfortable on the ground, I awoke to the sound of my name. Dermot was kneeling beside me. You're wanted, he said softly, with an embarrassed look. Where? At Bina's house? There's nothing to do with last night. It's your fingernails. I sat up and rubbed my face, feeling for the first time a trace of hair above my lip. I'm too old for that. You know you aren't. I'm sorry. Come and wash your hands. He led me to a cistern of water and scrubbed my hands for me. I gathered he had been told to make me ready. He polished my nails and even cleaned under them with a little file. You're like a procuress, I said. Shut up. I should feel happy they have some use for you after all. I shrugged and walked up the hill through the gate. A few people were stirring at fires and fetching water. The door to Bina's house was shut and I knocked loudly. It swung open to an old man. Don't make such a racket, he said. Inside, Ochid stood with his mocking smile behind the table. When my eyes adjusted, I saw Bina curled up in a corner of the bed, "'ignoring us and combing her hair. "'Gir's brother Sicha was sprawled in a chair nearby. "'Without waiting to be told, "'I sat at the table and the old druid sat opposite me. "'He beckoned and I spread my hands on the table. "'He took them in his own knotted old hands "'and gazed at my polished fingernails. "'I had heard of this form of prophecy-making, "'to gaze into the fingernails of virgin boys, "'but I had not been used for this before.' He gazed a long time, humming softly. His humming and the sound of the comb hushing through Bina's hair were like a rhythmic chant. Finally he spoke. I see clarity. Oh, they shine. If there is to be bloodshed, it will not be great. More like a single sacrifice. But who wins? Ochid asked. The old magician held my hands so close to his face I could feel his breath on my fingers. I see, brothers. I see Cain and Abel. He stopped. Ochid started to pace. Sikka shuffled in his chair and yawned. You think this is really going to aid us? He pulled his dagger from the sheaf at his side and started playing with it. Ochid frowned at him and gestured to quiet him. Then he sat down next to the old man. Who is the monk's leader? He was addressing me. My stomach sank to have an answer, but I knew I was not in a position to resist anything. At the monastery, it's the abbot Bressel. But who is in charge? 
I don't just mean officially. Who carries the most weight? Brother Derek is our leader. Derek is mad. That was the first time I'd been given such an idea. But immediately I realized it was true. Tell me about these monks, the characters, what they value. It sickened me to have to answer, but I had no choice. It's hard to say because they're so different. Brother Robin is mocking and educated. Brother Nithard tries to make peace between him and Brother Gormgul. Brother Gormgul is a choleric, angry old man who loves Columba beyond any other saint. Ochid smiled to himself, the only sincere smile I'd seen from him. I looked over at Sitka, who was watching Bina brush her hair. He glanced and saw me watching him, and he glared. Sounds like there's no need for war. The druid set down my hands at last. No. But a sacrifice, Cain and Abel. Sitka ignored the old man, even though he had, without realizing it, absorbed the man's prophecies. They need to do something about Rune. Ochid was staring in thought, and I knew he was listening to all intently, though he appeared not to be. I could see his mind at work. I felt fearful for Rune, and dared to say, Rune seems a holy man. Ochid's eyes darted to me, and furrowed his brow as if a new idea started him. Then he chuckled, the chuckle that made my blood run cold. Yes, of course he is. He is a holy man, indeed. He slapped the table. What do with you? Go away. I left, feeling that everyone about in the fort could see the shame on my face. There was a great buzz of activity now, and as I headed toward the worksheds that lined the interior of the wall, I caught sight of Girek, who was handling a new sword at one of the smiths. I hung about and watched the shining sword flash in the morning sun. He saw me and looked puzzled for a moment. Then he remembered who I was and nodded. He laid out the sword, as the hilt was still to be decorated. Must be quite a journey for a young pup, he said. I'm Kayla, I'm not so young. He regarded me and touched the new down on my chin. So I see. Sure you'll grow tall soon enough? Come along, I'll show you around. We walked from shed to shed lingering to watch the various craftsmen. There were silversmiths fashioning jewellery and cups, potters, leather workers, wood carvers, glass blowers. I had never seen so many men working without being engaged in raising cattle or growing crops. Some of this work is done at Iona, but always as an adjunct to the farming. Even the scribes did some farming. I was fascinated by the craftwork and wanted to do all that I saw to be a silversmith or a leather tooler. We stopped by the cistern for water, and I wanted to tell Girek of my recent shames, but I didn't know which one at first. I was far more embarrassed by the previous night, so I told him about it. Later I regretted not telling him of the morning prophecies. He laughed at my tale. That's a great story. I'd all be ashamed not many men can say they survived such wrath from Ochid. How is it a chief hasn't been decided on? He hesitated then shrugged as if it didn't matter to tell me. I am the leader of half the men, and I am for Rune. My brother Sikka leads the other half of the men, and he is for Aachen. Men are divided, but as brothers we have held back from coming to blows. Will you let the monks decide and anoint the chief? He cocked his head. We would have preferred a larger delegation of monks for that, with your abbot Bresso to lead them. I cast my eyes down. It was true we were not a good assortment of men to decide this. I thought again to tell him of that morning's conversation, but still did not. I resolved I would tell him later. A bell was struck. It's time for the prayer service that your monks are holding for Don Hera. I'll pray for you, I blurted out. I had no idea why I said this. He gave an ironic smile. Thank you. I must return to my fort. He held out his hand and shook mine as if I were a friend. Then he disappeared through the crowd. I passed the work stalls where swords were being sharpened, wondering if they would soon be used. The monks were just coming out of the house when I found them, and I asked Reuben to speak alone with me for a moment. Are you going to be the ones who decide who should be king? 
I asked. Yes, you have asked us to anoint the fitting king. We are praying on it. We are on our way to the church now. I think you must pick Ruin. Orchid is an evil man. Why do you say that? He killed a fawn in front of the doe yesterday. Reuben looked grim. That is the prerogative of a king. He keeps a concubine. That is commonly done. My throat felt tight. It was a losing battle. You aren't going to pick him? He sighed and shook his head. It is a good thing to be friends with a powerful man. We must go now. The church adjoined the great house, and inside it seemed dusty and neglected. We prayed and sang hymns. As we came out, a group of men coming up the hill hailed us. They had just arrived by boat with a splendid gift from the king of Tara, and needed help carrying it up the hill. We went down. Lying in the boat was a pillar of shining black stone. It was carved all over with something like letters. Little pictures of hawks, fish, eyes, and other designs. It was about a foot on each side and ten feet long. This is splendid, Ochid said. They call it the Stone of Destiny, one of the visitors said. It is a most ancient stone, and no one knows its origin. We would erect it at the top of the hill. It was a heavy burden carried on our shoulders. By we, I do not mean Ochid or the court, but myself and the other slaves. To Ochid... It was a splendid signifier of the power of kings, to those of us who strained to hoist it up the narrow rocky path. It was a folly of vanity. At the top of the hill a hole was quickly dug, and pulling on ropes we raised the black emblem of power. From now on, this spot will mark our meeting place for assembly, Ochid said. Exhausted, I leaned back and gazed at it. It was a striking sight as it gleamed in the sun. I only wished it were a cross. We will treat it as a cross, and consecrate it to holiness, Ruin announced, echoing my thoughts. He crossed himself, and asked the monks to sing a hymn. I looked around for Girik, surprised not to see him among us. As the monks finished their hymn, a group of soldiers came up the hill, Girik's men, carrying a flag. The crowd gave way. A soldier raised the flag over his head. It is with the pain of a great loss we must tell you news. A few minutes ago, our beloved Thane Gierik accidentally fell to his death from the top of the fort. The crowd droned. My eyes stung with tears. I thought he must have died the moment we raised that awful black pillar. We will go back to the church and honor him with a great funeral, Ruin said. Ochid took hold of the flag and led us but I felt he could hardly contain his glee. It was Girik who had been in his way, and I was sure his death was no accident. After all the prayers, I went to the well to drink and try to quell my grief. Derek came to my side, and also drank. We must get lapis lazuli for the Holy Mother, he said. Summoning my strength, I said to him, Please, you cannot choose Ahit to be king. He turned to me with an awful glare. His throat bulged red and a rage came into his eyes. He took a big dipper of water and poured it over my head, pushing me by the shoulder to the ground. Cast the devil out of this boy! Cast the devil out, I say! He prayed, and I crouched by his feet. After praying, he calmed himself. We must get the lapis, he said, and walked away. That night we all met around the pillar with torches, and Gormgul anointed Ochid as king. And I went off myself to cry. The next day, at the feast, Ochid rose amid the toasts and announced that Ruin would retire to the monastery. He is before you now, having given you this letter. He is a good man, and I hope to see him again. But things have taken a turn. Ochid then beckoned me over to my surprise, and put his hand on my shoulder. I have also decided to begin with an act of generosity, to buy this boy's freedom and make him one of my men, with a few cattle 
and a grant of land. His face was triumphant. He was buying me. He divined all that I understood about him, and he couldn't stand for that lowly and unimportant as I was. So he would buy my favour. I turned to my companions. If you please, though your offer is gracious and, well, beyond generosity, I have a different end in mind, that I would like to join my brothers and become a monk at the monastery. The monks beamed at me. Ochid gave a surprised smile, then raised his cup in a toast. I had beaten him, resisted him. Only you know why I did this. I will ponder and pray a long while whether it is a sin to have made this decision for such a reason. But there is more. Darek stood and said, We must obtain the lapis for Holy Mary. She must be depicted in blue, the colour of purity. We must press on. Ochid knocked on the table in agreement. Yes, you must. We will send you wherever you must go to obtain it. That night I joined the monks in the guest house. I was treated as a penitent, welcomed with kisses, but the joy was brief, because the matter of attaining the lapis was a point of argument. We must go to Frisia. There is a market there, where they have all we need. Reuben and Gormgal were in a delicate position. Darek was our leader, as if he were our abbot. It would have been sinful to disobey him, but he bordered on madness. I wanted to go. I wanted to be the devil on his shoulder, whispering, Press on! Press on! I wanted to see the world and feel this yearning to understand how it worked. That's dear brother. We must take Rune back to Iona, Reuben said gently. The sailors who brought us here can take him back without us, Darek replied. It would be dangerous to stray so far, Gormgul said. We have Ochid's power of protection, Darek said. He smiled like a willful child. It is beyond our mission, Reuben said. We must go. It is God's will. We have promised to paint the Holy Mother, and we have a duty to our benefactor and to God. We must go. Reuben sighed and looked at Gormgul. They sat silently, having run out of arguments. And so, we were going to Frisia. To be continued. If you enjoy Continuous Stream, please give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast player. For other ways to support the show, please see the show notes or visit www.continuousstream.com. Thanks for listening.